When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone. Today I will be chatting with Dr. Sarah Postpost. Dr. Postpost completed her psychiatry residency as a chief resident at UCLA Kern. As a perinatal psychiatrist and mom of two under two, she is devoted to helping moms and moms-to-be with burnout, depression, anxiety, and other psychiatric challenges associated with preconception planning, IVF, pregnancy, postpartum, breastfeeding, and more. Dr. Postpost also empowers moms who often juggle multiple responsibilities to optimize and balance their lives by incorporating exercise, nutrition, sleep, stress management, efficient time management, and other sustainable lifestyle changes. She offers telepsychiatry appointments across California, and for non-California residents, she offers additional free resources at www.lifestyletelepsychiatry.com. I will also link this in my bio. In today's episode, we will discuss postpartum anxiety, postpartum depression, and burnout in motherhood. We will discuss practical ways to reduce stress and anxiety in our day-to-day, as well as when to seek help from a psychiatric provider. Let's dive in. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode, this podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. All right. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sarah Postbus. We're so excited to have you today. Hi. So excited to be here. Thank you so much, Lindsay, for having me today. Yeah. Today, we're talking about a really important topic that so many mothers can struggle with postpartum, which is postpartum anxiety, postpartum depression, perinatal mood disorders in general. And I'm just really happy to have you on today to talk about all of these and how to recognize them and how to seek help and maybe even taking some coping techniques away from this episode today. So do you mind just starting off with, can we talk about the prevalence of postpartum anxiety, postpartum depression, and maybe some of the other mood disorders that you might see postpartum? Yes, absolutely. So first off, before depression, anxiety, and other mood disorders, perhaps the more common things that the listeners may come across is postpartum blues or baby blues, which happen to up to 80 of all moms. So four in five, that's a huge number. And typically for baby blues or postpartum blues, within the first few days of giving birth, moms may experience a lot of intense emotions, a lot of mixed feelings, being very tearful, very sad, irritable, exhausted, tired, all of this just combined together. And then if this doesn't resolve in the next few weeks, or if it's becoming more severe, typically we may encounter what we call PMAD, postpartum mood and anxiety disorders. It gets clumped together, but it essentially means a mood and anxiety disorder in postpartum period. So that would be throughout pregnancy and traditionally up to four weeks within 
postpartum after giving birth. The prevalence for that is up to 20%. So one in five, which is very also prevalent, very common. And another thing that may not be so common in terms of uh for the listeners to come across is postpartum depression could also happen to the partners, so traditionally to the dads. And for that, it's up to 10%, one in 10, which is also very high. Other mood disorders like bipolar, for example, or perhaps postpartum psychosis, it's less in terms of prevalence than the depression and anxiety. But it could, the period of postpartum or pregnancy could very much entice or increase the likelihood of this, especially if someone were to already have these episodes prior to their pregnancy. Okay, a few questions. So when you're talking about the baby blues and you're saying up to 80% of people, is this typically tied to a hormonal component? Do you think? And is that why, you know, it then switches later on to the one in five or... Yeah, great, great question. So I think the baby blues has a lot of factors in terms of its possible causes, right? Having a baby on its own is a huge life adjustment, especially if you imagine a first-time mom. Their role as a mom, as a partner, as an individual suddenly changed so significantly when a newborn comes into play. And within those first few days, there are so many unknowns in terms of, you know, Throughout pregnancy, actually, how will the pregnancy goes? How will the delivery goes? If it's going to be an emergent or natural or other types of delivery, needing different types of intervention. When the baby comes, how's the baby's temperament? Those sleepless nights, of course, could come into play psychologically. Like you mentioned, there's a lot of hormone fluctuation. When we get pregnant, the the hormone in our body would change. And then when we give birth, that would change significantly as well. But in terms of postpartum depression, actually, it's not so much of the level of these hormones that may trigger it. Studies actually show that it's how an individual would respond to these hormonal changes, hormonal fluctuations that may play a bigger role into whether someone were to develop a depressive state or not. Okay, so then my next question for you is, are some people more at risk than others? Like what predisposing conditions or scenarios might lead them to be diagnosed or have to suffer through like a postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety? Great question. So if we take apart, let's say depression first, for instance, if we separate depression in moms, so postpartum depression and regular depression and talk about regular depression first, it's of course multifactorial, right? There's a genetic component, for example, if in your family, someone suffered from depression, you may be at higher risk to develop depression. There's childhood component in terms of nature versus nurture. If you happen to have any sort of trauma in the past, perhaps some sort of neglect, abuse, verbal, emotional, sexual, things of the sort that could be very traumatic as you grow up. It could be the medical conditions, for example, that you may also have that affects this as well. The list goes on. So in that regard, postpartum depression is similar in terms of the multifactorial causes. But one thing to, to keep in mind is if in your first pregnancies or prior pregnancies, you develop postpartum depression, then your risks at subsequent pregnancies perhaps could be higher. And that's also similar to anxiety. So out of the postpartum anxiety context, just anxiety in general, it is also multifactorial. A lot of things could come into play, including personality traits. If you're just someone who's perhaps more perfectionist, more worried on baseline or raised by anxious parents, where there's some modeling coming into play in there as well, that all of these factors, different factors, various factors could come into play 
as to whether someone's going to develop anxiety as an adult or not, similar to postpartum anxiety as well. Now, are you more likely to suffer from, say, postpartum anxiety if you have postpartum depression and like vice versa? Is there any correlation between the two? Great question. So outside, again, outside of the postpartum context, uh, these both are very common. Anxiety, in fact, is the number one, the most common mental illness out there. And depression is the number one cause of disability. So both are very common and both symptoms could very easily overlap and both conditions, depression and anxiety could exist together. 50%, in fact, up to 50% of those who are depressed are also anxious. And perhaps that this trend is somewhat similar in terms of the postpartum period as well. So if you have postpartum depression, you could very much also suffer from postpartum anxiety. The thing is, Lindsay, postpartum depression is somewhat more well-researched, if I may put it that way. Therefore, in terms of screening, icing the symptoms, awareness out there, it is more captured, so to speak, because of that reason, perhaps. It's interesting you brought that up because I do feel obviously at your six-week appointment, they'll give you this sheet and you go through it and it is targeted more towards postpartum depression. But as you mentioned, postpartum anxiety is actually more prevalent overall. And I do feel that, and I don't know if you'll agree, the word anxiety is just around so haphazardly. Like everybody just, I'm so anxious today. I have so much anxiety. So it's just thrown into the wind so much. But like actually thinking about, do I have significant anxiety to the point where I would need some sort of intervention, whether that just be talking with somebody and trying to get some coping skills and or maybe being placed on medication. I would love for you to talk more about that. What are the common symptoms of anxiety? How can I recognize it? And then how can I recognize when I need to get more help than what I'm trying to do at home, whether that's I try to go for a run or I do yoga or what have you? Like, How do I know that's not going to be enough for me specifically? Yes, 100% agree with you that the word anxiety is so commonly thrown around to the point that it's perhaps a bit hard to differentiate anxiety versus day-to-day worry as well. In terms of common anxiety symptoms, so first off, anxiety could look different from one individual to another. It may vary in that sense, but some common symptoms include general one general sense of worry excessive worry, and I'm talking about the ones that perhaps consume you almost 24-7, that is very much out of your control. It's so hard to control this sense of worry, sense of doom. And perhaps it can make you feel like you're irritable all the time or keyed up and on edge almost all the time. Of course, if you're worrying about a lot of things, about number of things, it's could very easily affect your concentration. It may make it more difficult to concentrate, to focus on a task at hand, perhaps at work or at school. It may affect your sleep, makes it harder to fall asleep, stay asleep, all of the above. It may affect your energy level because you're just feeling so exhausted, so tired of all the time because of all this dread, all this worry. And it may affect a lot of other areas in your lives in that sense. Panic attacks is not uncommon. So panic attacks traditionally is defined as sudden, out of the blue, untriggered sense, huge sense of worry, of anxiety that's often accompanied by a set of physical symptoms. So what are those physical symptoms? It could look like your heart racing or some chest tightness, difficulty to breathe, or some feeling sick in your stomach, perhaps. 
feeling dizzy, feeling hot suddenly all over your body and in your face, perhaps impending sense of doom, feeling so, so out of control and just intense fear that you feel you might die, it all could happen as well. The last part to your question is in terms of how to know when to seek help. There's always two red flags in terms of anxiety, as well as depression and other common psychiatric challenges to watch out for. First is if the symptoms cause severe intense distress in your life, or two is if these symptoms interfere or impair your daily function, your day-to-day life in any way. So that could look like impairing your work performance, perhaps, or your grades if you're a student, or your relationships with family, loved ones, and whatnot. If you experience either one of these two symptoms, then it's a good time to reach out for professional help. And so the professional help, obviously, this will vary person to person, but typically in your practice, are you giving them more or less coping skills and then seeing where it goes and then trying medication? Like what's your, how do you typically approach this type of patient? Yes. And again, this is not a medical advice. It's just for purely educational purposes. But there's a lot of factors uh, that goes into our consideration, right? One of the common factors in terms of deciding medications versus non-medication options is the severity of the symptoms. So let's say if the symptoms are still somewhat mild versus if it's so severe, having multiple panic attacks all times a day, and they just cannot afford to go out of the house which let's say impair their work, they're about to be fired, which impair their marriage, about to get divorced, which impair all sort of areas in their life. The milder versus the more severe symptoms could definitely play a role in terms of deciding is it time to start medication or not. The other factors, for example, is their preference, right? Some people would love to try therapy first. And if the symptoms are milder, then it could be reasonable to to do that versus some people, for example, just couldn't commit to the frequency of having, let's say, weekly therapy or biweekly therapy and just wanted to try a medication right off the bat. All of those factors could really impact our decision tree when deciding whether what sort of intervention we're going to use in anxiety. Now, do you have any go-to coping techniques for those that might be experiencing anxiety or increased stress? Like not the people that are necessarily requiring medication. Of course, they can use these, but maybe those of us who are experiencing a day of increased stress or a period of our life where we're just having more anxiety, are there like certain coping techniques that you would suggest for those people? Yes, I actually have two. And these are my personal favorites because it's portable. And as one mom to another, for the listeners out there too, it's very easy, right, to incorporate things that are portable that we literally can use anytime, anywhere, whether it's chasing our toddlers or breastfeeding or feeding the baby with bottle or waiting in traffic during drop-offs and pickups at the kids' school and so forth. So My first recommendation, my first technique is intentional deep breathing. And what I mean by that is literally just intentionally breathe using your belly, so your diaphragm. I like to count to six while inhaling, count to six while pausing, count to six while exhaling, and then repeat it a couple of times. So why is it so useful, even though it may seem so easy to do? So stress and anxiety 
has a lot of effects in our body, not just in your in our mind, but also our body responses, right? During anxiety time, for example, one system that get activated is our sympathetic system, which is our fight or flight or freeze system. When this got activated, there are a couple of downstream effects. In our brain, let's say the focus switch between or from our prefrontal cortex, the brain area that allows us to think clearly, to a more primitive, more fear-related part of our brain, the amygdala. And then downstream, it also increases our heart rate, our respiration, and in the long run, it affects a lot more other body responses. Our muscle get more tense and so forth. So what deep breathing does is it switch to the opposite system, parasympathetic system, which of course also have a snowball effects of relaxing us, of putting us into calmer state. My second technique in terms of recommendation have similar effect. It's called grounding techniques. We use this often in psychiatry. Basically, here we're trying to switch the focus from our mind, which is often cluttered, overwhelmed, stressed out, to our five physical sensations. So those are to see, to hear, to taste, to smell, and to touch, right? So let's say I'm in a room and in front of me, I have a water bottle. And you can do this with a lot of other items too, whatever you have in your disposal. So I'm going to pick up the water bottle. I'm going to observe it and see what it looks like. Is it half full, half empty? How does it look like? When I pick it up, perhaps it makes a little crinkling sound. I'm going to focus on that and I'm going to focus on how it feels against my finger. Then I'm going to open it up, smell it. Hopefully it doesn't have any smell and I'm going to drink it and focus on the taste. So what it does is first and foremost, it deground us from, from a lot of clutter in our world, a lot of overwhelming situations, perhaps. It enables us to pause and focus and being mindful, so to speak, in our present. And on the long run, this mindfulness also has similar effects to the deep breathing, including switching our system from the fight or flight or freeze to parasympathetic, as well as working on the long term with our for our BDNF brain-derived neurotropic factor, which essentially is just a miracle growth to our brain. It helps our brain function well. It it helps with our brain structure and our brain connectivity as well. Now, those are both great, easy, practical things that we can do. Today's episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. This is what makes it America's number one meal kit. Did you know that March is National Nutrition Month? HelloFresh makes it easy to choose delicious, dietitian approved meals. Simply look for the Dietitian Win tag on their menu choices for meals under 700 calories and with one-third less sodium. Being a mother of four and having an incredibly fast-paced daily routine, I love that HelloFresh offers quick and fresh recipes. Their latest line of meals are ready in less than 15 minutes. Try out their falafel power bowls or seared steak and potatoes with béarnaise sauce. Every week you can choose from over 40 recipes that include a variety of options including vegetarian, vegan, low carb, and more. You can choose calorie smart and carb smart recipes or even customize select meals by swapping proteins or sides, upgrading your proteins or adding protein to a veggie dish. I love being able to know that my meals for the week are already planned and prepped. On busy weeks, it helps immensely to know that I have a quick and easy meal ready to cook once we get home from all the hustle and bustle with after-school activities. 
Go to HelloFresh.com slash Lindsay60 and use the code Lindsay60 for 60% off plus free shipping. So head to HelloFresh.com slash Lindsay60 and use the code Lindsay60 for 60% off plus free shipping. Do you know anything about evidence-based practices like exercise, meditation? I've heard, and I don't know if you'll know anything about this, but I've heard a lot more recently about this cold water immersion, perhaps helping with depression and things like that. Have you heard of anything or read any studies on that? Yes, I'm going to try to answer it layer by layer. I know, sorry, uh, there was a lot. (laughs) There's a lot in that question. Those are all great. But what you mentioned the first time, exercise, actually my favorite exercise, I believe is often underutilized. And perhaps it's one of the biggest secret in psychiatry and mental health, if I may put it that way. And we all perhaps know intuitively that exercise is a good thing. But how, why is that? So just to name a number of benefits, and this is by not not all encompassing benefits of exercise is by exercise is beneficial in terms of biological, psychological, and social. So biologically, exercise help with that BDNF that I'm talking about, that miracle grow to our brain, as well as balancing neurochemicals in our brain, which in the long run would affect our mood, our anxiety level, as we discussed our sleep, our energy level, our concentration, and so forth. And of course, everyone knows that exercising is good for our physical health as well, right? It lowers likelihood to have chronic conditions, diabetes, high blood pressure, things of the likes. Psychologically, because a lot of mental health challenges comes with isolation, guys prevent that. And also exercise induce a sense of mastery, which in turn would affect someone's self-esteem down the road. And of course, socially, it provides that social stimulation that is so needed for a lot of mental health challenges. So in short, exercise is very beneficial. And the good news, especially for anxiety, even just one session, just one bout of exercise can really help with anxiety, can lower this anxiety sensitivity. So some is always better than none in terms of exercise. It's not all or nothing mechanism, so to speak. The second thing is meditation. So meditation is very helpful as well, especially if you look at the concept of mindfulness, just being in the present. So mindfulness is not necessarily blocking out all distraction, but what it means is just we're being present. We're being aware of what's going on in the present. And just like exercise, mindfulness has its own muscle, meaning the more we do it, the more we engage in it, the easier it becomes and the stronger our quote-unquote mindfulness muscle is. And it's beneficial because it has a lot of good mental health outcomes. It lowers anxiety, of course. It helps with mood. It helps with concentration. If you're in a back-to-back meeting or your toddlers and babies are screaming at the same time, if you practice mindfulness, it could very much help in terms of returning that awareness in that state, in that quote-unquote chaotic state. It also helps, again, with BDNF, that miracle grow in our brain biologically, helps with sleep, helps with energy, and the list goes on. And then the third thing is the cold water immersion. For that one, I'm not aware of specific studies on that for anxiety, but I've heard that it's been used a lot of the times in sports for athletes, but I'll definitely look into that. 
Yeah, I'm cur- I'm curious. I had just seen a little bit of it recently, of course, didn't I haven't actually looked up to see if there were any studies on it, but it's just interesting. So, I have a few other questions. Does it matter like what the typical exercise that we do is or how long we're doing it for at all? Is there science that backs up a certain amount of 30 minutes every day? Is there specific time limits to it? Fantastic question. So, the good news is in terms of the type of exercise first it doesn't matter in a sense that high intensity, so aerobics are great, strength trainings are great, and lower intensity, things like yoga, tai chi, and the likes are great. The bigger question is which one is your exercise of choice and which one that you enjoy is the type of exercise that you enjoy so much and therefore you can commit to do day in and day out. However, the perhaps one of the most well-researched type of exercise is aerobics. Therefore, a lot of journals, a lot of studies out there have studied the relationship between aerobics and variety of mental health conditions, including anxiety. And as of formal or official recommendations right now, one of the CDC rec- uh, and WHO recommendations is to do aerobics exercise, which just means literally anything, any sort of movement that can increase your heart rate. So it doesn't have to be a dedicated hour on the treadmill at the gym, but it could look like brisk walking. It could look like perhaps moving things around the house, doing chores. You could perhaps even squatting while brushing your teeth. Anything that brings up your heart rate goes. Intensity-wise, moderate intensity. The quick way to assess this is if you can still talk during the session, but perhaps cannot sing flawlessly during the session, that you're good to go. And then in terms of the time, the duration, at least 150 minutes per week, which just means if you're doing half an hour, 30 minutes, Monday through Friday during work days, then you're good to go as well. Excellent. On the same topic, but a little bit off what we were just talking about. Have you seen increased symptoms of anxiety or depression amplified when mothers wean from breastfeeding specifically? I only ask that because I had mentioned it briefly the few times that I had weaned from breastfeeding. And I would have an outpouring of people being like, oh my gosh, why does nobody talk about this? And I know some of it might be hormone related and all of that, but I personally experienced more increased anxiety and depression and all of that, not when I was like freshly postpartum, but actually when I weaned from breastfeeding. Have you heard that from from people? Great question. I actually do come across it, not in a in terms of patients, but people I know who mentioned similar things, similar sentiment. And I think it's perhaps the explanation for that could be a number of reasons, right? One, breastfeeding is a natural bond between mom and baby. And for a lot of us, it's a very special experience. So when we wean, whether it's intentional or unintentional, especially if unintentional, that quote-unquote bond that experience that one-on-one special experience got taken away and that could very much affect us emotionally. On the biological side of things, like you mentioned, breastfeeding does affect some hormones. Some One of them include oxytocin, which is a bonding hormone, hormone that affects emotional connection. So that fluctuation in that hormone, among others, could also very much affect our mood state and our emotional state 
Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so let's switch a little bit from anxiety and then let's talk a little bit about burnout and then trying to separate burnout from depression. I know that I actually have this series coming up and it's called How America is Failing Mothers. And it's just going to be people that have submitted these recordings about how they feel that America specifically has failed them, whether that be lack of maternity leave or lack of actual medical insurance or having medical insurance, but then also having this significant financial burden after they have had their child, lack of child care, ex- extreme child care costs, like all the things. So I feel like burnout is is so incredibly common just because of all the different issues that we are stacked up against. I do feel that there are just so many and it's really hard to juggle them all, especially for even just navigating work or or navigating trying to be at home full-time with your child. I think it can be really difficult in both scenarios because in the scenario where you're working, you're feeling like you're not giving 100% at home, you're not giving 100% at work because it's difficult when you try to mesh the two together. And then when you are at home full-time, it can be really hard not to have a career that is giving you that satisfaction at the end of the day where you feel like, okay, I've accomplished something. Parenting is so much of not feeling like you're doing a good job because either your kids are upset and yelling or screaming, your baby's not not happy, and there's no adult oftentimes to converse with. It's just either a baby or a young child, and you're not able to have that, that feeling of accomplishment. Do you know what I mean? So let's talk a little bit about recognizing burnout and then trying to differentiate burnout from depression. Yes. And Oh my gosh, you worded it all so well. I feel that me, myself included, and all the moms out there are probably nodding along as we listen to, to what you described. So burnout, traditional definition, burnout is a syndrome, so a set of symptoms that's related to enduring work stress. So traditionally, burnout has always been associated with work stress in the context of a work, of a job. And of course, in terms of parental burnout, I think being a mom, being a parent is, you know, the very definition of work, right? Because we don't have lunch breaks, we don't have vacation, we can't request time off. And of course, there's no quitting in that sense. So what are the symptoms of burnout in terms of how to recognize it? The three big areas of burnout symptoms are as follows. One is emotional exhaustion, which just means that you're perhaps emotionally drained, exhausted all the time, not just physically and not just those exhaustion that goes away with, let's say, watching an hour of your favorite TV show or taking a hot shower. The emotional exhaustion is just there almost all of the time. You're just feeling drained all of the time. And then the second thing in terms of the burnout category or symptom category is the lack of connection so emotional distancing distancing so to speak so it may look like you lack or you don't have or you don't feel that emotional connection with your children anymore with your kids anymore every day it's almost on an autopilot so to speak and you just do things on survival mode day in and day out there's no empathy so to speak there's no emotional bond there's just no emotional side of things in that regards And the third area is feeling that you're not accomplished, that you don't have any accomplishment 
despite the evidence. So in the case of parenting, perhaps constantly feeling like you're not good enough parent, you're not cut out for this, you're not a good enough mom. And that could be very draining as well. And in terms of risk factors for burnout in the context of parenting, of course, things like having bigger family, smaller children, having to stay home all of the time does affect it. But surprisingly, it only have a smaller effects in terms of the burnout risk as compared to these few things that I'm going to talk about. Risk factors that have bigger impact, first of all, is mom's characteristic. So if the mom tend to have perfectionistic tendency or how in terms of emotional regulation, how does the mom manage stress or manage emotional things, emotional, different emotional state? The second factor is the child's characteristic. For instance, if the kids have some sort of special need, it may increase the likelihood of burnout in parents. The third thing is how they raise the children in terms of their day-to-day practice. If there is a lack of routine, it may also increase the chance of burnout. The fourth thing is support. So this include partner support as well as extended support, perhaps from other family members, what have you which would lead to having time for leisure activities. So perhaps some me time for the mom, some time to relax for the mom. This, All of these factors actually have a greater impact on whether someone is going to experience parental burnout or not. In terms of how to differentiate it from depression, to answer your question, because burnout is defined as in the context of work, it is often limited to work in terms of symptoms, whereas depression is more pervasive. So it touches, depression touches almost all areas in your life outside work. So perhaps relationships with family, relationships with your kids, with friends, with loved ones, lives, and what have you. Second thing is it depression could be more severe in terms of symptoms and the third thing is whereas burnout may get better by taking time off or taking a break from work depression oftentimes does not so depression Mm -hmm. oftentimes require more intervention more help whether in the forms of therapy and or medications now you're describing burnout in general and i'm over here saying check (laughs) what is it I'm just saying to myself, oh, yeah, I experience all of these things. And I feel like most people listening probably do, too. It's got to <laughs> be like incredibly common. But what can we do if we're feeling this, this burnout all of the time? Yes, great, great question. In a traditional work burnout limited to work, taking time off may be considered. But again, as a parent, there's no time off, right? Perhaps it's helpful to think of burnout in the context of imbalance between challenges and resources. So when the challenges outweighs and especially far outweighs the resources, burnout can very much happen. So with that regards, if you can, it's really hard to do almost all of the time to to change that externally. So either lower your challenges or increase your resources. But again, as we talked about it earlier, systemic changes is almost impossible, right? Maternity leave, the demand of having a career if you're a working mom with balancing it with the house responsibilities, abilities with kids and family. It's often hard to change, if not impossible. So the next best thing is to change these things in terms of our perception. So our perceived challenges and our perceived resources. So what are those things that could affect that? Let's say, let's talk about perceived resources, for instance. Perhaps we can work on how we emotion, how we regulate our emotions better or how we, in a chaotic, overwhelming situation, defreeze, depause, and deground ourselves by using 
let's say, those techniques that we talked about earlier, deep breathing, mindfulness, grounding techniques, and so forth. And then in terms of changing our perceived challenges, is it possible for us to lower our expectation? So perhaps before kids, we want the house to be clean all of the time, but no errands or no chores left to the next day. But now, because of course our time and energy and both physical and mental energy is very much limited, is it reasonable to lower those expectations a little bit? And then as a result, we would consider, we would view it differently and be more okay with our current situation. I love that you mentioned that because I feel like for me specifically, I struggle a lot with that. And I grew up in a home, I was an only child. And so my mom, she was always, she was very clean and everything was always just when that laundry was always done and feel like I have to uphold that within my own home. But I've had four kids in nine years, so it's a little bit different. But for some reason, I'm still extremely hard on myself where I'm like, but you can do that. You can still, and the reality is, of course, that I can't. And it's just like this constant struggle with trying to accept that and creating these new boundaries for myself, right? Like you said, just saying, listen, like this is the way it's going to be. You're not always going to have the house clean. You're not always going to be able to make dinner every single night and do all the extracurriculars and do all of these other things. And I do think like in in this day and age, so many mothers are praised for being able to do it all. And I feel like that can be such a problem because I don't, we shouldn't have to strive to be able to do it all. Like we should be striving to see how many people we can have help us. It's like the mentality of years and years ago. And in many other cultures, they use everybody from the community to help and family and friends. And it's this joint effort, whereas very much here in America, and I'm sure other places, it's just for themselves. And oh, and you are so successful if you're able to in a career, take care of your children, cook all your dinners, keep your house clean, do all the things. And it's praised that way. So it's it's really hard because I feel like we're stuck in this, this single-handed mother motherhood situation where we're just scared to ask for help because we want to be that hero and we want to be that person that can do it all at the expense, of course, like our own mental health. Totally. Affection is for sure an illusion. And especially in, I think in the context of motherhood, it's such an unattainable state, unattainable Mm -hmm. perfection that is expected from us. And it could, like you said, very much affect our mental health. All right. So what do you think? Do you think we're ready to move on? I have a few questions for you. We'll see how many we can get through. Do you have anything else you wanted to mention? Uh, No, we can move on to question. Okay, perfect. Okay. How can I catch myself before I lose my temper? I'm wrecked by guilt after I yell. And this is another really common theme with the questions that I've seen. It's this knee-jerk reaction to something going on, whether it's like one of our kids does something, spills something, makes a mess, or kids are fighting, and there's like knee-jerk reaction to, to yell right away to make whatever it is stop, and then having this like extreme guilt afterwards. Like how can we... What can we do in that typical like that typical scenario to avoid all of that, to avoid the yelling and to avoid the guilt afterwards? Yes, great, great question. And it happens to so many of us, right? I'm gonna answer it in two parts. First, although it's very hard to, like you said, to avoid or almost delay this knee-jerk reaction, as much as you can, trying to breathe is really helpful. So before 
and again, it's very difficult, but it and it takes practice, of course. But before saying, perhaps saying anything or reacting in any sort of way, try to take a deep breath, or if not, just breath for a couple of times, and then that way you give yourself, your mind, your body, a chance to ground yourself first, so to speak, and then react to it instead of using the knee-jerk reaction or react to it intentionally. So deep breathing or breathing for a couple of times really help. But the second part of my answer is the mom guilt. Mom guilt is so real and it almost happened to, or at least to me, to almost every sort of situation, especially when it's related to our kids, right? Because we love them, we want them to thrive, they're our world. So one thing that may be helpful is this one concept in child psychiatry by Winnicott, which is a good enough mom, good enough parent. We don't have to be perfect. We just have to be quote unquote good enough. And again, as we talked about it earlier, perfection is an illusion, even though it's really hard because it's an automatic mindset, but try to remember the good enough parent or good enough mom concept as well. Yeah, no, that's excellent. What do I do if my postpartum anxiety has turned something into a phobia? Good question. I would assume in terms of the phobia, of course, it depends on the situation. Is it more so a phobia, like anxiety specifically related to one thing? Is it related to, for example, let's say germs phobia, like intrusive thoughts over and over again about germs in this case that let, that could lead you to doing some compulsive acts, compulsive action, like washing your hands over and over again? So it depends on the situation. The rule of thumb to remember is, again, if those two red flags that we talked about earlier, if the symptoms are either causing severe distress in your life or impacting your day-to-day, that could look like impacting your relationship with your baby as well, or your ability to function, so to speak, in the house, with your family, at work, and whatnot, then it's a really good idea to seek professional help. So at what point would you no longer consider it postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety? Is there a specific point in the postpartum period where you would say, okay, this is no longer related to postpartum. This is just like flat out depression or anxiety. So the definition, unfortunately, differ, especially when they're doing studies out there in terms of studies, they often use different definitions. So some include up to four weeks, some up to six weeks, some up to 12 weeks, right? About three months. Some even include the definition of up to a year. Don't think there's a set definition, but perhaps we can look more into the context of the depressive mood and or the anxiety if the timeline gets a little fuzzy. So let's say if the anxiety is so related to the baby, so for example, someone may be so anxious that their baby is still breathing and they go check on them multiple times in 10 minutes, despite the likelihood of seeing them still moving on their sleep and what have you, then it may be related or it has the higher likelihood for it to be related to postpartum in that regards. Right. Oh my gosh. I'm just thinking of, so when our first was born, I'm sure this is very common with first time mothers as opposed to mothers of multiple kids. But I remember so distinctly, I would check. I had the monitor, the baby monitor right next to my head, of course, when I'm sleeping so I can hear. I would wake up every half an hour and I would just stare into the monitor and look for a chest rise and fall. (laughs) But I wouldn't, and then I couldn't go back to sleep, of course, right? Because now I'm like into this like this like fight or flight mode of is my child breathing? And then I'd fall back asleep only to wake back up in another half hour. 
you're exhausted anyways as a first as a mom postpartum this was i don't even know how i look back and i'm like i don't know how i was a functioning human being <laughs> because Definitely. it was just like oh my gosh it was just so intense and it's i think i did it for a full year just like i was just so scared that my baby was going to stop breathing for some I feel like it's just that can happen where you're just really hyper focused onto one specific thing. But that was my now <laughs> that was my focus, the baby monitor. And then I think I was so tra- and maybe traumatized is too dramatic of a word. But for the second, third, and fourth babies, I didn't use monitors anymore. I was like, the baby is right next door to me. When I would move them out of our room, they're right next door. I will hear them cry. And I was just like, my sleep, I need my sleep. I cannot be a human being that functions in any way, shape, or form if I'm not getting sleep. So I just canned the, I, we just, we haven't used one <laughs> at all with any of the other ones. <laughs> For sure. It could be very exhausting, especially, wow, one full year. Must be super tiring on top of the lack of sleep as well. Yeah, it was just crazy. How can I stop feeling like I'm failing at being a mom? I'm failing at work. I'm failing at being a wife. I'm failing as, at being a friend at any given time. Yeah, that's very tricky and it's very hard to answer in the sense that those feelings are very strong, right? Especially, and I'm speaking for myself as a working mom, Lindsay mentioned it earlier as well, not feeling 100% at your job, not feeling 100% with your kids, not feeling 100% at home, the list goes on. So I think what helped for me is one, remembering that good enough mom, good enough parent concept by Winnicott, and two is this concept of alignment. And what I mean by that is our lives are composed of different seasons. And having a baby before versus after the baby comes is definitely a different season, right? It's it's a huge life adjustment. It's a different season. And it's okay for our priorities change within each season. So I think what would be helpful is to take a moment to grab a, pe- a pen and a piece of paper and write down your current, at this time, at this season, your current priori- uh, priorities and perhaps the pros and cons of having that priorities. And once you're clear on that, try to live your life in alignment to those, so in congruence to those. Perhaps what helps is a very quick journaling. And I don't, we're all busy. We barely got enough sleep with an especially with newborns, with new babies, and with kids in general. So what worked for me is a very short journaling, which consists of, I'm going to, each night, I'm going to go back to that line, to that core values, to that priority that I identified earlier, perhaps just one line, one word, if you can, and reflect back on that particular day. I'm going to rate it from one to 10 on how aligned that day is to my core values, to my priorities at this time. Let's say I put a seven and then I'm going to write one sentence. Why? And tomorrow, the next night, I'm going to do the same. Perhaps tomorrow it's a nine. And then I'm going to write down why. And that way, it to me, it's just felt more in alignment and therefore is more balanced and more fulfilling instead of just being on survival mode, trying to be my best in every single role day in and day out, which could be very exhausting. Okay. So if I have, last question, if I have postpartum anxiety or postpartum depression and I start getting help, getting treatment, seeking help, am I guaranteed to have this? Do I have to struggle with this for the rest of my life? Is it something that might go away? That is a great question. And uh, the answer to that is again, like almost anything in medicine is a case by case basis because there's so 
many factors to consider, right? For instance, how mild versus severe is the symptoms currently? Is this the first episode versus recurrent episodes? Is it perhaps caused by multiple stress that might be, and the symptoms might be attenuated once those stressors are being lifted up? Is there any family history, medical history, substance history of applies and other factors that may affect the depression and anxiety at a given time. So unfortunately, the answer is on a case-by-case basis, but your psychiatrist, your therapist could very much help to delineate the plan or the current plan for that. So I'm going to end with two questions I ask everybody I interview. So the first question is, if you could give one piece of advice for moms, what would it be? And it doesn't have to be about what we talked about today. So if I could only choose one, I would say some is better than none. And this applies to almost everything, if not everything in life. And what I mean by that is, let's say for exercising, right? I used to think that I have to exercise Monday, all the way from Monday through Sunday, spend an hour at the gym to be quote unquote successful in exercising. And if I were to miss one day, I'm going to say to myself, okay, I'm not cut out for this. I'm going to stop. But what I've come to realize, especially after coming across that statistic, one bout of exercise helps with anxiety and just one hour a week helps with depression. I come to realize that some is always better than none. Yes. No, that's great. I love that. And then the last question is, if you could make one meal for your whole family that everyone would eat, that's relatively quick and easy, what would it be? Huh, that is such a great question. I think for me would be egg and avocados. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Delicious, Scrambled or easy. what? How do you Ooh. like to make your eggs? So the easiest for me would be boiled eggs because I could just have it, have a lot of it for meal prep, boiled eggs and have it for different occasions. Yeah. Uh, So I would say boiled. (laughs) Perfect. No, I love that. So thank you so much, Dr. Sarah Postpost. I'm so excited to air this episode. I think it's going to be really helpful for those that might be struggling postpartum. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lindsay, for having me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.